0: Hi, I'm Sarah. I have an awesome husband and three amazing stepdaughters. Marriage and parenting is already a juggling act, and blended family relationships are even more messy and fragile. We won't always get it right the first time, but if you're looking for encouragement, you're in the right place. Thanks for joining us as we grow closer as step families. Welcome to His Kids, Her Kids, Episode 5. Nurture and Structure. Pillars of the Earth is a miniseries based off of a book. I I watched the miniseries probably when it first came out, and a few years later, several years ago, I read the book. And something struck me that I haven't forgotten. One of the main characters, Ellen, is a social outcast. She lives in the woods with her son, and people are afraid of her. They think of her as, like, a witch. And she doesn't really want to be accepted in society. And she likes that people leave her alone because they're afraid of her. So she really embraces that witch identity. Well, while she's living in the woods, she spots a man traveling on foot with his family in search of work. And she stalks him for several days. When she approaches him, she says, I knew I wanted to be with you from the first time I saw you. I've been looking for a man like you my whole life. A man who is powerful and kind. I remember it hit me like a ton of bricks. I I put the book down and I thought about it. Is that really such an unusual combination? I thought of the people I knew, specifically men, and I thought, how many men do I know that I would say are powerful and kind? After only coming up with a few names, I decided that I agreed with her. It is an unusual combination. F. Scott Fitzgerald said The test of a first rate intelligence is the ability to hold two opposed ideas in mind at the same time and still retain the ability to function. I feel like we can definitely see evidence of that around us. It's hard not only for us to process that two opposing ideas might both have a place at the larger table of theory and social policy, but in our own lives, our marriages, and as parents and step-parents. If you're a step-parent, you're not their parent, and yet you are filling a parenting role in their lives. Of course, the kids have to come first, and your marriage comes first, Obviously, you could never replace their other parent, nor would you want to. But you better treat them like they're your own. Fitzgerald wasn't kidding. Retaining the ability to function is very much at stake. Maybe it is actually almost too much to ask one person to be powerful and kind consistently as a parent. Maybe that's part of the brilliance of the American criminal legal system— one attorney is dedicated to one side, and the other attorney is expressing the perspective of the other, rather than asking one attorney to present a balanced viewpoint from both perspectives. Maybe we can endorse both nurture and structure in our stepfamilies, best through our marriages. I know that is definitely the case for me and my husband. In the last episode, I talked about predictable needs that the children in our homes have. Needs for affirmation, expression, attention, and acceptance. And on the other side of the scale, children also need discipline, boundaries, instruction, and consequences. Both nurture and structure are necessary for a strong relationship with our children. I love how Karen Purvis puts it. Without nurture, a child doesn't learn to trust. Without structure, a child doesn't grow. This reminds me of the story of Helen Keller. I loved the movie Miracle Worker when I was young. I was a huge fan of Helen Keller and was fascinated with every part of her life, how she overcame her limitations in society as a woman and a woman with very significant disabilities She was both deaf and blind and became that way because she had scarlet fever when she was a baby. Her parents were so thrilled that she survived and just loved her so much. As she grew, she was deeply loved and cared for by her parents and uh, servants that lived with them. They gave her everything they could, and she was very comfortable always getting what she wanted. But as she grew older and as a new sibling came into her life, it was harder and harder for her parents to maintain safety for her and the other family members. And that's when they brought Ann Sullivan into the picture. For the first time, Helen had rules. She couldn't just ignore her spoon and her fork and do anything she wanted. Ann Sullivan believed that Helen was capable of being more than a feral child all her life. And she opened the world to Helen through communication and accountability. Perhaps I fell in love with this story because I am naturally such a structure person. I mentioned before that I'm a rule follower, but I'm also the oldest of six kids. So I'm very comfortable with being in charge, telling kids, don't touch the stove, don't cross the street, you know, being the rule enforcer. Several years ago, Long before I met my husband or was taking training to become an adoptive foster parent, I volunteered to teach English at an English camp in Spain. There was a really high teacher-to-student ratio, and it still amazed me that it seemed like I was the only one who would enforce any kind of rules at camp. Kids were running around like crazy during the large group music hour, and all the teachers are are there— but I was the only one making eye contact with the kids, pointing to the timeout chair as a warning, and then having to escort them there to sit down while I kept an eye on the clock. It just seems like out of all the people there, I was the one that was most comfortable enforcing the rules. I always had a hunch that I'd marry someone who was less of a disciplinarian than I was, and boy, was I right. My husband is the most naturally loving and kind person I could have asked for. I'm comfortable introducing a consequence the first time I see something I don't like, and my husband would want to give a warning and then another warning and another warning, hoping the heart-to-heart conversation produced the necessary change. He's also more comfortable with exceptions when it comes to bedtimes and chores Now these differences in our parenting personalities naturally set us up for a tug of war. Now he is the girls' biological parent. I have never been a parent. And the girls are used to things being a certain way at dad's house. If push comes to shove, who do you think is coming out on top? Not even a contest. Me and my no fun structure are going to be licking our wounds while the rest of my family goes forward just like they did before I even arrived. Thank God for my foster parent training. I am convinced that learning about Dr. Karen Purvis and TBRI, trust-based relational intervention, before I met my husband saved me from so much suffering that we would have all have endured. So my parents were pretty comfortable with spanking. So, I pretty much assumed that I would spank when I had kids. But when I started pursuing adoption from the foster care system, I absolutely knew that spanking was not going to be an option for me. And this wasn't even, you know, my decision to make. The the system gave me a form and said, "Sign here on the dotted line that you are not going to use any form of corporal punishment." So since I had no idea what I was going to do if I can't spank, I took every training, read every book, was trying to make sure I had a plan in place because as a single woman, I wasn't even going to have somebody else to be helping me with this when I did get kids in my home. And I remember how odd all of these trainings were, how mild the consequences seemed to me. It was all so strange and unfamiliar. Almost two years later, the things I learned in my foster parent training struck my husband as odd as well. I remember some of those first conversations that we had about what it was gonna look like raising the girls together after we got married. We were coming from such different places. How can we empower each other in our parenting to support sufficient structure and allow the children in our home to grow? How can two different adults with different perspectives find a way that works for both of them, the natural nurturer and the -the dyed-in-the-wool disciplinarian? Do-overs and choices. The first time I heard about a do-over was in foster parent support group, and I remember honestly thinking to myself, how in the world is a do-over going to discourage anything? a kid knows the only thing that's going to happen to them if they do something wrong is they have to do it over? To be honest, I was thinking of more serious behaviors like violence against other kids, you know, biting, that kind of thing. And that's not the kind of situation that I would recommend a do-over for. Do-overs are for reactions and habits. Now, that might not sound like much, but so much of our behavior and children's behavior is just that. Once we learn how to walk, we're not thinking about it. We just walk. We're not engaging our prefrontal cortex and agonizing over each step or the perfect stride. And the same is true with our speech. Your children and stepchildren have ingrained habits when it comes to how they communicate and respond. You know when you hit your elbow just the right way, not even very hard, you're going to say, Ow! you're not going to think about it. It's just going to come out. But did you know that not everyone in the world says ow when they hit their funny bone? What comes out of their mouth is different because of what they heard growing up. If you grew up in China, you probably will say, ah, yeah. Or if you're in France, they would say, Do-overs give our kids and stepkids the chance to learn a new habit or way of responding. If your child has a habit of whining every time they ask for something, you and your spouse can agree to respond by saying, I hear you asking for more screen time. Before I answer you, I'd like you to try that again without whining. If the child genuinely seems stuck and confused, you can offer to demonstrate and have them copy you, even word for word. Even if you feel like they are just resisting the do-over, you can say, I'll show you how. You can say, may I have more screen time? Just like that with a normal voice. Or you can say, would it be okay for me to finish the game before I get off? One of the things I love about do-overs is that it keeps things positive with me and my stepchild. I'm not attacking you, raising my voice, threatening that if you speak to me that way one more time, I'm going to make sure you'll wish you hadn't. There's just an immediate timeout and a do-over time. Try that again with respect. It's like the best mixture ever of ignoring the behavior just for the sake of peace between us and still addressing it, teaching them what to say instead. This is especially huge in really emotionally triggered situations. It's not fair. You said we could watch cartoons on Saturday morning and I hate you. Could be done over as... I'm really disappointed that we are going to visit Grandma in the morning. Can I watch cartoons when we get home? Practice makes progress. A music teacher would never think that telling a child that what they just did was wrong would be sufficient for getting it right the next time. Plan on going through do-overs dozens and hundreds of times. Do-overs are a lifestyle a lifestyle of instruction and training. Think about coaches. They will practice a move with an athlete over and over and over again until they could do it in their sleep. How much more important is it to build respectful and healthy responses in our children? Giving our children the tools to show respect, handle disappointment, and request privileges We'll come back to them a thousand times our initial investment. This won't be the last time we discuss do-overs, but now let's turn our gaze to choices. Providing structure in our home through choices is an amazing way to bring freedom into our family culture. Dr. Purvis talks about shared power and how providing choices strikes a balance between a dominating my way or the highway approach or finding yourself harboring a tiny terrorist in your own home. Now I've already talked about choices when it comes to food and mealtimes, and they are a great opportunity to incorporate choices. You're getting ready to cook breakfast on Saturday and you aren't sure if you should make bacon or sausage. Let them choose. You're at the grocery store and you can't decide between the chocolate cake or the white cake. Ask them. These are examples of what I would think of as low hanging fruit when it comes to choices. You don't care. And by letting them decide, you're getting lots of buy in from them. And that sets them up to want to continue to endorse the decision. You could even do this to something as big as your family vacation destination. You can't decide between the beach or the mountains. The budget is the same, the dates are the same. Of course, not everything is going to be the same, but you would be fine with either choice. If you turned the decision over to your teenager, they are so much more likely to look forward to the trip and enjoy themselves. If for some reason they realized there were factors they didn't take into consideration, they're more likely to quietly tuck that lesson away than to act like a hostage the whole time. A way to incorporate choices in your parenting in an example that's a little more complex would be sitting down with your child to talk about a schedule. Rather than finding an example of a schedule on Pinterest and breaking the news to your 10-year-old at breakfast, get out a pencil and paper and talk about it with them. It might go something like this. Junior, Mom and Sam want to try something out this week. If we like it and you like it, then we might do this for the rest of the summer, but for now, it's just for this week. We want you to have a balance of playtime outside, screen time, reading time, and indoor playtime. Every day doesn't have to look exactly the same, but I do want you to do four hours of non-screen time before you get screen time. What ideas do you have for how we can balance these activities? Do I have to play outside every day, they might say? Some days it's too hot. That's a good point, you could reply. We could say five hours of outside time a week. Then, if there's a really hot day or two, you can stay inside those days and have more outside time later in the week. But if Thursday comes around and you don't have at least three hours of outside time already... Then, no screen time Thursday or Friday, unless you catch up. Could it be four hours of outside time? I imagine would be a likely response. You'd like that better, you could say? Let's see how the rest of this schedule shapes up, and we'll come back to that. What do you want to talk about next? Reading time or indoor playtime? What does indoor playtime mean? Legos? Yes. Legos, board games, art, puzzles, cars, kinetic sand, making homemade slime, Play-Doh, even some educational computer games. Well, how many hours of that do I have to do a week? Now, this would be an excellent opportunity to offer a choice rather than dictating the answer to their question. You could say, well, if we do 20 hours of non-screen time a week, And we have four or five hours of outside time already. Then we have 15 or 16 hours left to split between reading and indoor play. How would you most like to allocate these two? Well, I like playing better than reading. So can we do 10 hours of indoor playtime and 6 hours of reading? Then can I have only 4 hours of outside playtime? Sure, you say. Every day, Monday through Friday, you can do four hours of those three things and we'll keep track of the time. After you've done your four hours for the day, you can have screen time until Sam comes home. Then we have dinner and family time before bed. After we've tried it for one week, we'll discuss what we liked and what we didn't. I think you made some wise choices and I think it's going to be fun for all of us. Now I get that doing something new like this and discussing the entire upcoming week might be too much. Probably better to start with one day at first, but you can find yourself building up to a discussion like this. Even if the end result is not the 100% solution you were hoping for, many times the 80% solution that your stepchild participated in is going to be better than the 100% solution that you decide on alone. Another way that you can incorporate choices is when children are complaining or being critical. Let's say you announce that you're getting ready to go shopping for an upcoming cruise vacation, and one of the children says, Oh no, my favorite show is on now. Why can't we go shopping at 3 p.m.? You feel your face starting to heat up as you think to yourself, Do you have any idea how lucky you are to be going on a cruise? Do you have any idea how hard it was for your dad and I to save up so that we could do that? I want to take you shopping to buy you special things, and all you can do is think about how you want to do something else instead. Take a break and consider your options. If this really is the only or the best time for you to go shopping, then you can say, I'm sorry, this is the best time for us to go shopping, but you know what? You don't have to go shopping. I trust you to stay home alone if you want to not go shopping. But I do need to warn you that I'm not going to guarantee that there will be another time to go shopping. Now, there might be, but there also might not be. The choice is yours. Obviously, you don't want to offer this choice if you aren't actually willing to let them stay home and miss out on shopping for clothes. If you are just bluffing, the children will call your bluff. Another example is you have company over and you get out vanilla ice cream. The child wants chocolate and you don't have enough chocolate to offer your guests. You can say, I'm sorry, you can't have chocolate today. But you don't have to have vanilla. You can choose to not have ice cream. Be prepared. When you offer choices to your children and stepchildren, Make sure you ask yourself first if you are really okay with them making either one of these choices. I can tell you from personal experience that it's no fun to offer ice cream or a fun trip shopping only to be turned down. But if they don't have a choice, are they really going to enjoy themselves? And isn't that what it's all about? Obviously, there are tons of things we shouldn't give children a choice about. But the more you look, the more you find opportunities for choices. Teeth must be brushed before bed. But does it matter if they're brushed right before going to bed? Or after dessert and before the evening movie? Homework needs to be done. But does it matter which subject is first and whether there is a little break in between? The more choices you offer them, the easier it is for them to accept no or be okay when you aren't offering a choice. Do-overs and choices are just two of the many areas of common ground that my husband and I have found to benefit our family. In future episodes, I'm going to talk about the time in shared chores, respect dollars, and marble dates. Keep growing and take good care.